Now, most of you know that our church has just purchased a building, 292 Liberty Street. Um, It's at the intersection of Liberty and Rock, which is a really cool part of town. I mean, it's a part of town that um, a lot of the diversity of Harrisonburg is in that area. Now, we're renting these digs, right? Um, In fact, this building is slated to be demolished and to become a parking lot as the lower portion of Urban Exchange grows in its commercial um, residence. Now, why are we buying that building? It's, It's costing a lot of money. A lot of us are giving really sacrificially to do that and to renovate it. Um, what are we doing that for? Well, one reason we're doing it is because we're out of room, you know. Uh, we just need more room so that we can kneel when we worship and things like that. But is that the only reason? I mean, I think on some Sundays when it's standing room only in here, we can feel like we need a new building because we need more room. But it would be unfortunate if that dominates our imagination as being the purpose of buying that building? Why are we investing in land and property in the heart of downtown Harrisonburg? Is it merely so that we can worship with more space? Now, it is that, but it is not merely that. It's not only that. Our scripture passages this morning They help us to get a vision of why we're buying a building and what it means for a group of people to be a church deeply rooted in a place. Look with me at Acts chapter 10. Um, If you need to use your table of contents to find it, that's, that's no shame in that. Or if you're Alan Lamont, you have to find the... The right button on your iPad. Acts chapter 10. Start in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now this is a dangerous verse for our culture because it feeds right into a deep value of Western culture, right, of American culture right now, this idea of tolerance, which is a wonderful value. But one of the things we often struggle with when we're reading very old pieces of literature, we struggle with unknowingly bootlegging our culture's understanding into the passages we're reading. I talked about this last week. The word hussy. When you're reading Shakespeare, it means housewife. But if you were to bootleg your culture's understanding of what a hussy is into Shakespeare, you would totally misinterpret one man saying to another man, how's your hussy? That exact danger poses itself with this passage. What we're seeing in the whole of Acts chapter 10, this incredible series of stories, and and Scott only read a portion of them, is that your ethnic and your social identity do not determine 
whether or not God will accept you. The idea here is that now I understand God shows no partiality. He's not saying with regard to everything. He's saying with regard to this particular issue because we've really read that statement right in the middle of a story. And so it's like walking up to Shakespeare and unknowingly bootlegging your notion into his word. Look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now, the first thing Peter says here about Jesus is that Jesus alone is the Lord. That he alone is the one true ruler over every culture and every ethnic group and every nation. He alone is God and there are no other gods. Now, Peter does not say to Cornelius, I gather you've got a wonderful faith. Even though we're all on different paths, we're all going up the same mountain. Now, in the context of Acts 10, that's not what Peter is saying. Now, that's a great discussion to have. But it would be anachronistic to read that into this passage. What Peter does say is that the only true God has come near to all of us in Jesus Christ. And he has done something in Jesus that that deeply impacts the history of the world and gives new meaning to human life. We can't see here that Christianity is offering one truth among many. In fact, he's claiming the exact opposite. He's making a very arrogant statement. He's making an exclusive statement. He's saying that Christianity is not one version of a single larger truth among which all the different religions capture a piece. He's actually saying the opposite, and that's one of the dangers of our particular cultural moment. It is so powerful, it can cause us not to overread or underread this passage, but to misread this passage. We have to take it seriously on its own terms in its own cultural context. So in these two verses, we're seeing something that is at the heart of Christianity. This claim that Jesus alone is the whole way and the entire truth. This confession of faith, it's central to what it means to be a church. And as we move forward, we've moved from a house to this building. And as we move into this building that we're purchasing, this claim... That Jesus alone is the whole truth and the entire way. It must be the central claim that shapes our identity and allows us to define terms like tolerance and religion and accepting and including, including and excluding. It all must be defined around this central claim. See, the problem is that many of us start from our culture... And we read into the claims of Scripture our own pet values, whether we're Republicans or Democrats. I mean, whether you're listening to NPR or Fox, the challenge is the same. It's to allow this feedback to occur where your perspective opens up Scripture so that Scripture can then correct your perspective. Now, what does it mean... To claim that Jesus is the whole truth and the entire way. 
Well, that's verse 37 and following. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. See, Peter was an eyewitness and he's talking to other people who have a living memory of these events. It began in Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did. Notice, he's talking to contemporaries. This is like Scott, who's a lawyer, standing in a court and looking at the jury and saying, now you're witnesses of the events that occurred here. This is contemporary language. This is not after the fact revision of history. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now this is a summation of what the earliest witnesses believed about Jesus. It shows us what they knew to have occurred and it shows us how they interpreted it. Look first at verse 43. The last verse. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This whole notion of forgiveness of sin. Notice how this passage is coming from a total different context than our context. Often today, it seems to me that that people think that when it comes to forgiveness, you just need to forget the bad things that have happened. But that's way too simple. You try to say that to the Jews, right? Try to give that piece of advice to people who have endured radical evil. Just forget it and move on. That's not forgiveness. And whether we're dealing with one nation sinning against another nation, or with me sinning against my children, when it comes to evil and sin and forgiveness... The evil, the sin, must be named and confronted. There must be no sliding around it, no attempt to act as if it wasn't that bad after all. Verse 43 gives us a very different approach to sin than our culture is accustomed to. See, in verse 43, there's this idea that forgiveness is available to all who believe in Jesus. This is assuming a whole backstory that we have in the Gospels. That when Jesus was crucified, what we were seeing is how the evil in the world reached its height at that moment on the cross. And how God's long-term plan for Israel's glory came to fruition. At the death of Jesus, the image of the Gospels is that at the death of Jesus, evil in all of its forms, personal, structural, 
in every form came rushing together and crucified the Son of God. Now, whether you believe that interpretation or not, that's the picture the Gospels are painting. That on the cross, Jesus experienced the confluence of the evil in our world. And in his resurrection, he defeated evil. That on the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus experienced and defeated sin and evil. We live in a, a, a moment in human history that treats evil far too lightly. And we find ourselves continually without the robust resources to deal with evil when it's really aggressive. We've developed a bad habit. Of merely giving lip service to this idea of sin. Of really acting like sin is some outmoded concept. And that with a little, psycho- a little psychology, with some technological advances, with economic prosperity and democratic government, and a good education, we can solve the deep evil of the world. But in the most educated century, in the most technologically advanced century, in the most prosperous century, we still have Darfur, Rwanda, the the Jewish Holocaust, and stabbings and shootings on on our streets. And some of our most educated governments, most prosperous governments, most technologically advanced people, We are still filled with hatred and anger and greed and selfishness. I mean, what about you? What about your own life? What about your dark thoughts? What about your evil desires? Sin is a reality. And the reality of sin is that we are all stained. Personally and corporately by evil. And this stain, it plays out in two ways. We're stained in the sense that we bear guilt. As individuals, we bear the guilt of our own sins. Our status before God and before others and before this world is guilty. It's a real status that we carry. And we're plagued by this terrible status, this shameful experience of our own guilt. And one of the results is that we are exiled from God. And that matters. The status of our guilt alienates us from our Creator. Not just on an existential level, but on a profoundly objective level. We are in deep need... Of forgiveness, not ignorance, not just acting like things haven't. We need forgiveness. We need the the status of guilt to be removed. Now, there's a second way that sin stains us, and it's that we are corrupted. 
We've been corrupted and broken and we spread the corruption of sin like a cancer. Sin has turned our power as human beings for good into this perverse corrupting influence. Not only is sin present in the chambers of our heart, it's present in the structures of this world. Not only are our bodies broken and our relationships broken, but in our rebellion against the one and only truth and way, we have plunged this world into deep darkness. Cities are broken. Art is broken. Business is broken. Government is broken. Nature is broken. The whole world groans under the selfishness and rebelliousness and wickedness and sorrow and pain that our sin as humans have caused. The entire created order, the whole cosmos stands in deep need of the healing power of the creator. Now go back to verse 43. The audacious claim of Christianity is that Christ offers that forgiveness. That Christ alone does. Now that's an exclusive, arrogant claim. This idea that in Christ and only in Christ, we have the opportunity to be restored to the way God intends for us to be. And this is the job of the church. Is to proclaim that offer, that reality. It's to offer this world. It's to be agents of forgiveness, to not only talk about it, but to embody it. To embody it in the way we treat our enemies. To embody it in the way we react to those, whether they're our bosses or our neighbors or our mothers or fathers or brothers and sisters, when they perpetrate evil against us. It's to embody the awesome power that forgiveness is a real possibility. And when we move into that building, we must move there as people who believe that saying Jesus is the only way and the only truth is that his way is the way of forgiveness. Not simple, naive, turning a blind eye to evil, but receiving embracing and offering radical forgiveness. Now, that's only half of the job we're presented here in this passage, that to believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life is to offer and live out this forgiveness. The other half is in verse 42. And and to be honest, for a church like ours, 43 is far easier to at least ascend to than verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God To be judge, not just forgiver, but judge of the living and the dead. See, verse 42 is this notion of justice. And verse 43 is this notion of forgiveness. Now, there's part of verse 42 that's easy. I mean, within all of us, there is a cry for justice. You just go to any playground and you hear a child yelling out, that's not fair. I mean, that's a primal cry for justice that we're all born with. Now, we want it for others, you know. I've got children who will insist on justice unless they are the ones about to receive it. 
This primal cry for justice, it's this Jungian notion of this, of this universal subconscious that we're all tapping into that wells up from our heart when we see someone mistreated. When we see cities being run into the ground. I'm, I was born in New Orleans. A lot of New Orleans' problems is, a, is more than a century of graft and corruption. And when you go to New Orleans and you see that, it can make you angry. We, 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 we feel this cry and desire for justice when we think of Hitler and the nightmare of the Holocaust. Where's the justice? We long for a world where the bullies don't always win. A world of fair and straight dealings. Of honesty and uprightness. A world where communities function fairly and operate efficiently. Where people who hurt others don't just walk away laughing. Or to the bank. All of us, we're painfully aware that this world is deeply broken. But here Peter is telling us that Jesus' life and death and resurrection are an infinitely costly rescue operation. Not just to rescue us from our guilt, but to rescue us from injustice. To be a Christian today is to be a part of this operation to restore justice To those who can't get it. And judging by the way most of us are dressed. This is not us. It is far easier to get justice. In America today. When you're white and middle class. This issue of justice must drive us. To the oppressed and the marginalized. To those who cannot secure justice for themselves. In the way our society is set up. That's the other half of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness. It's implementing the victory of God. The whole victory of God in this world through what? Through suffering love. That's the cross. We not only have to latch on to the resurrection. We've got to latch on to the cross. I'm reading, many of you know, I talk about this a lot lately. I'm reading these historical novels set in medieval England. And it's astonishing the things that the religious authorities are saying. That we will establish the kingdom of God through the power of the rack. You can't latch on to the resurrection without denying the means. The cross. And when we're trying to latch on to the method. We don't need to put ourselves in the position of the actors of power. But of the meek lamb of God impaled on the cross. We work and fight for justice through suffering love. Not through flexing our muscles. The calling of our church is not just to proclaim the forgiveness of Christ. It's to work for the healing that comes from restorative and redistributive justice wherever we can. Our job as a church is not only to be a community that worships God in that new building. And that's, we, that's definitely a part of it. We're also to be a community that proclaims The forgiveness of God. And get this. We must be a community that extends the mercy and justice achieved at the cross. Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This prayer means that God's passion for justice must become our passion for justice. It should break our hearts, the plight of the marginalized in our community. This is not an optional add-on. It's not the gospel plus social ministry. When you say the gospel plus all this other stuff equals plus social ministry, you've just gutted the gospel. Peter didn't just arbitrarily come up with this notion of judge and justice. It's right at the center of whatever passage you turn to in the Bible when it describes the kingdom of God. But here in the West, we put morality and heaven and hell into the driver's seat of Christianity. And we've ended up with this otherworldly religious system that ignores justice while we're pining for the sweet by and by. The point of following Jesus isn't only that our sins can be forgiven and we get to go to a happy place when we die. Our future beyond death is of enormous importance. But the nature of the Christian hope is that the goodness and justice and beauty of God plays back into the present. We're called here and now to be agents of the new creation. Look at it this way. The life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that whole gig, that was God launching something new that we're not only beneficiaries of, but we are also agents Of that new creation. Now it's very important to understand. How far reaching. This issue is. Remember our psalm. If you have your Bible. Look at Psalm 98. Or in your worship guide. I think it's on what? Page 2. The psalm we read earlier. Page 2. Psalm 98. And did you notice a lot of the songs we sang? What was the first one about? All creatures of our God and King. And and then there was another one that had to do with nature. Lord of all creation. creation. Did you notice how Psalm 98, there are rivers clapping their hands? Did you notice that? And trees clapping their hands? I doubt many evangelicals I know today could write anything that has to do with praising God that shows a tree or a river clapping. Most of us in American evangelical Christianity, our notion of spirituality in Christianity is immaterial. It's this Casper convention in the sky business. Did you notice how profoundly earthly the songs we sang and the psalm we read were? It's talk of earth itself rejoicing and the sea and all of its animals and plants roaring with delight. The rivers clapping their heads and the hills singing because of their overwhelming joy. And did you catch the reason for this exuberant party breaking out in nature? It's in verse 4, Psalm 98 verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And clearly that doesn't mean all the people of the earth. Based on the other things it names in the passage. Look what it says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in a joyous song and sing praises. Sing praise to the Lord. Look in verse 7. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. And why? 
Why is the human and the non-human creation connected in this interlocking roar of joyous praise? Verse 9. Because he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. There's challenge here for the liberal and the conservative. The liberal hugging the tree and the conservative watching Fox. There's challenge for all of us. I love how how Jesus cuts right through our two-party system of politics. There's talk of justice for people. And there's talk of ecology. There's ecology here. There's Christology here. It's all here. The true God is coming to judge the earth, to judge it with true justice because sin, the creation itself, is out of joint. But the message of creation is that the whole creation is being set free at last. It's being put back on the right track the way it was supposed to be. And you know what? Psalm 98 is not an anomaly. It's not. This way of seeing what Christianity is about is encompassing both our moral guilt and the creation itself. This is all over scripture. This opening up of salvation into connections between judgment and joy. See, there's a real challenge there for the liberal. And between humans and nature, (laughs) there's a real challenge there for the Republicans. This opening up of salvation that stretches over these dichotomies that we have in our our world. This is all over scripture. This steadfast insistence that God's salvation is, is in the connection between judgment and joy. And in the connection between humans and nature. This is all through the Bible. Now as we are looking forward as a church to, to being rooted in that building... This must dominate our imagination. We worship and work for forgiveness and for justice. Now I want to close by asking you, how will that new building, you know how it's going to help our worship. We all feel that when we can't move around. And afterwards when we have bagels and coffee and you can't hear anything because it's so loud. And when the children in the nursery are all talking and you're right next to the door. Notice only Mike sits over there who's hard of hearing in one ear and can't hear out of the other. <laughs> if you've got the hearing of a, of a rat, you know, super good. You need to sit over here. Not the hearing of a rat. We feel how it's going to help our worship, but how is it going to enable our proclamation of forgiveness and justice? I want to close by giving you one way I think it can do that, and it's a very specific way, and it's just to provoke your imagination to come up with other ways. Take the issue of land. The prevailing cultural winds in our culture have taught us to see land solely in terms of its profitability for the agri-industrial corporations. And part of that is the reason that Black Run that goes right behind that building is in an abysmal shape. Now let's apply this passage and just say, what does the gospel have to do with the fact that that building sits on Black's Run? Or is that just incidental? 
Is the gospel only about the souls that walk into that building in the shell of bodies? Or does the gospel have anything to do with the physical land itself? And I want to propose to you, it has just as much to do with Black Run as it does to do with your morality. It's funny how many conservative American Christians are comfortable attaching the adjective holy to the noun land when it involves Palestine. We don't mind describing land as holy if Jesus walked on it. But we're blinded by, by doing that, by reserving that combination, that syntax for Israel. We are blinded to the holiness of the land we live on. Think about what our own language can teach us. Land can be holy. Wendell Berry once told the story about this artist named Harlan Hubbard being asked by a local church to paint the Jordan River. Have you ever been in like these small country churches where they're like right behind the pulpit, there's a baptistry and there's a picture, you know? Hubbard obliged. And his painting of the, of the Jordan River, he actually painted the Ohio River. And Wendell Berry, reflecting on this situation, said, If those of us who live in the watershed of the Ohio River saw it like Hubbard saw it, would it be so shamefully polluted? Would we be strip mining its headwaters? In other words, the Holy Land did not become holy by divine prejudice in its favor. It's holy because it's a part of the world God made. We just sang it. All creatures of our God and King. One of our favorite songs, this is my father's world. If we really believe this stuff. As Christians, we must care for and celebrate nature. Why? Because it is part of God's restoration project. We must love this world because it's God's world. And it will be healed. And do you think you can sing, let the rivers clap their hands? Can you look at a polluted river and think that's anywhere close to a river clapping its hand? Are the rivers in the new creation going to be so polluted? Is that what it means? No, not at all. We're not merely passing through this world in this life. We are shaping the building blocks of eternity. The resurrected body of Jesus was the first bit of material order that, will, that has been renewed and restored. Jesus' body ascended into heaven as a divine pledge that the rest of creation... The rest of physical material reality will one day be renewed and be restored. And we're not just the beneficiaries of that. We are to be the agents of that now. I know this sounds really Al Gorish. (laughs) But if we're going to take the gospel and the Bible on its own terms, stop thinking hussy means what you think it means in your culture. (laughs) And stop, and you're making just as bad of a reading of the Bible if you think the gospel only means the soul. 
If we're going to take Christianity on its own terms, if we're going to unleash the Bible from its American captivity, if we're going to let the clean sea breeze of the earliest understanding of who Jesus was, if we're going to let that blow through our minds and our imaginations, then maybe the uncomfortableness of this ecological kind of talking, maybe it is just what we need. Maybe it's just, you know, it's funny, the conservative Christians like to accuse the liberals of... of, of making an idol out of the notion tolerance and the liberals like to recognize that the conservatives are messing up when it comes to nature. It's unfair of Christians who sit on the Republican end of our political spectrum to refuse to listen to the part of the Bible that talks about God's creation. And it's just as bad for Christians on the more liberal end of the spectrum to wipe away the exclusive claims of Christ In the name of tolerance. Ecology. Christology. The nature of creation. The nature of Christ. The message of the church is radical and unfashionable for Democrats and for Republicans. And as we move into that building, we've got to keep that clearly in mind. And so we've got to ask. We own all of the land on part of Black's Run. What is our job with that? How do we apply the gospel to that? And the good news is we, we're not starting from scratch. There's already a great movement at work in Harrisonburg that we, we have got to join in with when it comes to Black's Run. Why? Because Christ died so that rivers can clap their hands. The living God in fulfillment of his promises has found us and saves us and forgives us and offers us a new life in Jesus. This is huge stuff. And the living God has moved heaven and earth to make it happen. Not only so that we can benefit from it, but so that we can be agents of it. Let's pray.